Welcome to Planet Innovators and the Average Joe. Brought to you by Tim. You are in the right place. Here you can get excited about the incredible work going on to protect and preserve our planet and listen to human stories behind the climate movement. In each episode, industry experts and entrepreneurs will help us understand your questions and share how they're leading the way in sustainable practices. Join us as we dive into discussions about topics that matter to you. As a startup, we really appreciate your support with our mission. Subscribe to our podcast and you can see our journey towards a better future. Welcome to Planet Innovators and The Average Joe. Today I'm joined by Neil Riddle. Uh, he is co-founder and CEO of Power. And yes, that is smartly spelt. That is P-A-U-A. You might be able to see actually from his jumper. Uh, after your degree in engineering, you've been on a mission to decarbonize the economy. Power, your current startup, is focusing on enabling businesses and fleets to, I think, simplify access to public charging um, and incorporate into their value proposition as well. You are ex-director of a big energy utility as well. I'm sure that will be some interesting insight coming from that. Uh, and advise businesses and the government on all things EV. So welcome. Um, pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, going to be an interesting conversation. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting conversation. Um, we normally kick things off with a couple of warm-up questions. Okay. Nice, easy ones just to get yeah. things flowing. Um, so, first of all, tea or coffee? Coffee. Until I... about 12 o'clock and then I'll switch to tea. Oh, really? What, yeah. the caffeine too much from that point onwards? Yeah, it's or? just kind of like, a, you know, at some point you realise you might have to sleep at the end of the day. <laughs> so yeah, reduce the caffeine intake ever so slightly as you head into the back end of the day. Okay, very good. Um, what was your favourite subject at school? I was a really big fan of biology. Um, I ended up having to drop biology because I was doing too many subjects. And it was the one subject which I didn't feel had a natural application beyond school, but I loved it as a concept. So I basically got to my AS halfway through my A-level biology and had to drop it. But my kids are bored to death of me pointing out mushrooms and toadstools and birds in the garden and all sorts of things like this because that's what interests me beyond the day job. Was it the nature kind of element of it you think that really, yeah. like, yeah, it it's, it's visible as well? It's visible. It's, it's not real. theoretical only. It, I grew up in Highlands of Scotland, uh, surrounded uh -huh. by forests and fields and animals and creatures. And I did a lot of wildlife photography for a number of years. Um, and I became very passionate about it. But realistically, it's a very hard thing to build a business on. <laughs> Maybe next time. But um, but realistically, it was something that I spent a lot of time with my kids talking about. Oh, that's fascinating. And if you could choose to travel to the future or the past, which one would you choose? Future. How come? Um, you want to see how things play out with power? Or are we talking hundreds no, no, of no, years no, in no, the future? I want to go, let's do it properly. <laughs> okay. um, I've been reading science fiction way too long. Um, I grew up on various science fiction stories and it's it, part of part of my, I guess, my daydreamer attitude to life is driven by, you know, very smart people writing fantasy novels about how the future might look. Uh, I think I'd definitely go forward. I wouldn't go back. Interesting. Do you think when you step out of that capsule, it's going to be a barren wasteland or, you know, multi-planetary metropolis? Mm, multi-planetary. Um, I think one of the, uh, the two, the two sort of science fiction series, well, Asimov is amazing, but the two science fiction series that really captured me were the stories about Mars, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. Um, and then the, the more recent one, the, the series um, where they have effectively, oh God, it's going to escape me. Uh, they're effectively living on Mars and Earth and the Belters. Out oh, the, the Expanse. The Expanse. That is, the book, underrated. That is you, underrated. Have you read the books? 
No, I never read the, the books. books. are intense. They're so much better than the series. Um, and the books are really, they give you this really rich future culture. Um, and I just love that idea that we, we will ultimately become multiplanetary. But that journey to get there is going to be really damned hard. Yeah. For those of you, I think there was a uh, Elon Musk round four with Lex Friedman the other day talking about the the need to make sure we don't die as a single planetary species, as yeah. perhaps has happened before, and the, the need to push forward for that. But um, yeah. I'd love to see that. Probably not in our lifetime. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's a, bit, a bit mad, but yeah. it might well happen. Okay. And last question. Are fuel cards dead in an electrified vehicle world? No. Very good. In one, one, I asked you to do a yes or no, so I'm very happy you said no. We'll get, we'll definitely expand into that. Um, but just to kick things off, it's really helpful for um, our listeners to understand a little bit more about your journey. So from an engineering degree to yeah. now starting power, talk us just a little bit through like how you found your way into energy and, and I, I guess the motivations behind working on a kind of EV-based company. Yeah, yeah totally. Um I did a degree in chemical and process engineering. Uh, my grandfather lived up on the north coast of Scotland. And we used to drive past these sort of uh, oil research vessels all parked offshore in the Crometry Firth. And my background was like, yeah, I'm going to go into the oil industry. You know, there's lots of stuff going on in the north coast of Scotland. I want to go into the oil industry. I got three years into my four-year degree and realized that I really did not want to go into the oil industry um, and discovered that, you know, there was a whole emerging ecosystem of what at the time was badged as uh, clean tech. So I did a whole lot of work around hydro and uh, sort of uh, some of the emerging renewable technologies and became interested in the idea of joining the water industry. Um, but the water industry was actually, it turned out, quite a hard place to get a job. So I applied for a job on the north coast of Scotland, a place called Dune Ray, which is like as far away as you can get from anywhere, um, and got a job decommissioning nuclear power stations on the north coast of Scotland. So my job was to clean up uh, liquid radioactive waste streams coming out of uh, the decommissioning facilities at Dune Ray. Uh, it lasted nine months. Uh, for anyone who's been to John O'Groats in winter, it's a pretty cold place. Uh, it's dark. Uh, you know, you'd arrive at work in the dark. You'd leave work in the dark. You lived in the dark for the best part of the winter. Uh, I couldn't handle a second winter up there, so I moved south down to Harwell, where again I was decommissioning uh, nuclear power stations, but also things like nuclear submarines. Um, and a forward-thinking boss turned to me one day and said, hey, Neil, you should apply for this new job over here. It's with a company called British Energy. They run the nuclear power stations. Um, so one forward-thinking boss to another forward-thinking boss, I arrived at British Energy, and within a week, uh, my new boss said, turned to me and said, hey, Neil, why didn't you go on to Conman? I'm like, well, hang on, just right. I've only been here a week. So I got very rapidly trained up in a, a number of areas and went and joined the Committee on Climate Change in 2007. Um, so this was before the Committee on Climate Change had actually gone through any form of legal basis. It was still sat inside DEFRA, and it was all about how do we do the modelling and analysis of our various industrial segments to understand how we decarbonise and set carbon budgets. So I spent nine months there writing carbon budgets for um, the emerging energy industry. Uh, we were looking at sort of 2050 sort of timelines, so 30 years or so into the future. And realistically, we were building models based on what was called the marginal abatement cost curve. And that was like, how much money do you need to pay to save a ton of carbon? Mm. Um, and what technology will enable you to do that? And we built, uh, you know, these curves with, I can't remember, it was like three, four hundred pounds uh, per ton of carbon to use solar to save, uh, you know, carbon and use it as a technology in the UK to decarbonize our economy. Um, fast forward a little bit, I went back to British Energy. They got bought by EDF Energy. I was running a team that was looking at forecasting the future of the energy market. So back in the world of energy modeling. 
um, and I screwed it up pretty badly. We had uh, one gigawatt solar in our forecast, and realistically, the UK had already built uh, 11 gigawatts. So there I was with uh, an embarrassing forecast, which didn't reflect reality. Uh, at that point, I was like, okay, so this renewable technology stuff is happening. Mm. These big, complex econometric models we use with oil price and gas price and you know these sort of like political decision-making that influences energy price maybe doesn't work for these distributed energy technologies. So I became obsessed with distributed energy, grid edge, energy transition. I went and spent a bunch of time with a small social enterprise building rooftop solar in central London, and that's where I met my now business partner, um, I then went on a journey looking at uh, micro hydro, behind the meter batteries, energy flexibility, trading. That's when we met, mm-hmm. around about that period in the lime jump. Um, and then went on this journey looking at building out a what we called Aggie Agri, which is an aggregator of aggregators inside uh, EDF with a gentleman called John Davidson. And we put together a proposal for how EDF, a giant energy company, could suddenly flex and trade these much smaller energy assets. And it was on that journey that someone approached me and said, hey, Neil, why don't you run the electric vehicle team? It's a smart plug and a battery on wheels. And I was like, okay, cool, we can give it a shot. So we went on the journey with that part of the business, looking at um, investing in a rapid charging network at the time, uh, millions of pounds into the infrastructure that is now out there on the roads. But realistically, as an energy company in 2017, we didn't make that investment. Uh, too risky, the utilization wasn't there, vehicles weren't there, it was uncertain how it was going to pan out, so we didn't do that. We looked at vehicle to grid, which is a very cool technology. I can deep dive onto that at some point. Um, we then looked at rolling out infrastructure for businesses, rolling out infrastructure for customers. And it was on that customer journey that we or I, I started to explore what a business in this space could look like. Uh, the solution that EDF rolled out was a, a home energy tariff from EDF, um, a home energy charger, which was originally with the guys at EO Charging, uh, Charlie Jardine's team, and then flipped over to Podpoint following the acquisition. Um, and then it was with uh, a lease car with Drive Electric. And what we wanted to do was add to that bundle the ability for a driver to go off down the highway, find a charger, plug in and put all the data and the cost back on the home energy bill. And it didn't exist. That mm-hmm. technology wasn't there. I uh, had a lovely chat with the team at BP Pulse at the time. It was Tom Callow. Uh, and Tom said, we could do this, we could do that. And it's like, it's not just not quite going to work. Uh, so we suddenly established there was a gap in the market for someone who could run a big aggregated network of charge points and bring it to life with a technology platform behind it. Uh, so I approached my now business partner, Andre, and said, hey, Andre, uh, should we do this? Uh, it was right about the time that COVID struck. Uh, so I was at that stage, I'd switched over into a role at SSE, uh, doing some smart systems work. Um, and we sort of went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually we won some government funding. And Andre and I went full-time on power in April 2019. That's amazing. Sorry, 2020. <clears throat> April 2020, yeah. Right. The years also. We yeah, were talking they, about how the days have learned. <laughs> I think the years do as well. have found a life. Um, what's quite interesting is that you, you're actually given quite a lot of room to grow and learn. And clearly you have like a curious mindset within quite a big energy kind of company, big energy framework. Um, you mentioned you have shiny object syndrome. But like, was that mostly motivated by you pushing to to get into those roles to learn to experience and then why did it feel like you had to start a new company outside of all of that to solve this problem yeah it's a great question i mean one of the things that a large energy company offers you is the ability to undertake training that you might not otherwise get in the world of a small business um 
I did my first leadership training course with EDF in, it was British Energy at the time it would have been, so like 2008, 2009. Um, and a gentleman, one of the uh, station directors, a guy called Pete Pazeski, came and did a presentation. And one of the one things he said that really stuck with me is, you're doing all this leadership training, but actually the one thing you really need to know is to know yourself. Um, and I like, okay, great. Of course I know myself. <laughs> no, I didn't. Uh, I still don't think I know myself and I'm learning that as we go. And you've mentioned the shiny object syndrome. And I did, don't think I realized at the time that shiny object syndrome was something that I, um, I suffered from. I benefited from whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, for listeners, I always think of shiny object syndrome as this, uh, I do this thing. That's really cool. Oh, that thing over there is really cool. Oh, but what about that thing over there? And before you know it, you're you're off in a distant track looking at something that's a million miles from what you should be looking at. For a large corporate, that does not help. Uh, realistically, a large corporate gives you a job. It's got a predefined job description. You know, this is the thing you do. Do that really well, and we'll bonus you and we'll incentivize you to do more of that thing really well. Uh, so naturally, I didn't fall into that equation of big corporate space. So quite quickly, I got drawn out of that. Well, you can do this thing, Neil. That's the thing I want you to do. Have you done it? Well, I've done that and I've done a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of this. Before you know it, you're not delivering against the large corporate's expectations. But a large corporate requires you to work nine to five. Uh, You know, there's suddenly a lot of time around that nine to five to explore these other topics. Uh, So I found myself quite often exploring topics outside and beyond my day job uh, inside the world of large corporates. And large corporates, like you say, they give you the advantage of exploring new ideas, but also getting training in these spaces. Uh, So ultimately, I found myself in the Blue Lab or the innovation team of EDF. And that's where I was kind of almost promoted to do a little bit more of that, explore the shiny object syndrome space. And so tell us, as perfect lead-in, to tell us, I guess, a little bit more about the kind of mission of power and what problem you're trying to solve. Um, Certainly, you've mentioned high level about the data access um, and the technology that needs to support public charging networks and general charging networks. But talk us through like an actual kind of customer journey use case and, and the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'll tell you the story that we present today. Yeah. Because the story we started with may not actually be true. Mm. And that's why I think your question about fuel cards earlier was quite interesting. Um, when a business transitions to electric vehicles, um, a number of things change. Um well, when an individual changes to electric vehicles, a number of things change. Ultimately, you the bit the big bit of the transition that happens is you move to a new fuel type. That new fuel type is no longer liquid. It's no longer dispensed from a petrol station. That petrol station has been something that's established itself over hundreds of years. Our parents taught us how to use it. It's not perfect, but it works. It's utilitarian. It does what it needs to do. It fills up your car and you move on. Suddenly, when you move to electric vehicles, the places you can charge, your petrol station changes. Um, For those who are lucky enough to have a driveway, you can charge at home. Your petrol station is now at home. If you can't, you might be able to get your petrol station on the street outside. Street lamp, on street charging, parking near your house. Uh, When you're on a long journey, you get the experience which is much more akin to a petrol station. Um, And then you finally might have the opportunity to charge at work. And particularly for business drivers, that could be an office-based employee in their office car park or for a, a commercial vehicle driver, it could be a depot that they're charging at. But that means that the petrol station is now fragmented. And we describe it as public charging, home charging, and workplace charging. And you might not have all of them, but that is effectively the new petrol station experience. So it's fragmented into these locations. And the common piece around this is we have not found ways to get electricity to move fast enough into vehicles yet. So the power transfer is slower. Uh, so all of a sudden you go, uh, you know, seven minutes of or even two minutes of fuel time on a, a diesel pump and you get hundreds of miles. Electric takes longer. It's just a fact. 
um, as a consequence, the way you then change your behavior to adjust to that longer dwell time or that longer charging time is really important. And you get a lot of people who talk about the different ways that you charge. And classically, the optimal one is you charge overnight while you're sleeping, 10 seconds to plug it in, 10 seconds to unplug it. So within a 30-second period, you can fill up your car because the other 8, 9, 10 hours, you're asleep mm. or you're doing something other else that's meaningful. So what we're trying to do is bring that data set back together for businesses. So in the public domain, it's around that experience of find, charge, and pay. Where are these chargers? How much does it cost? Does it connect to work with my vehicle? How do I navigate to it? Uh, once I'm there, how do I actually turn it on? We've got over 100 operators in the UK today of public electric vehicle charge points. So does that mean you need 100 cards and 100 apps and 100 you know, ways to pay? Uh, we're aiming to bring as much of that into one solution as possible. Um, and ultimately, from the payment perspective, a business driver doesn't want to pay for it. They want their boss to pay for it. So let's bring all the payment experience back together. So public charging, fine charge and pay was where we began. And we began there because businesses found it hard. Um, a business that's electrifying can control their depot. They can build charging points in their car park. And as a consequence, they do that first. They then think about sending drivers home. Uh, you enter a different equation in the home space. Suddenly you go, um, hey, Joe. Uh, you're going home. Uh, here's a charge point. We might pay for it, or maybe you should pay for it. Who's paying for it? Uh, and then you go, okay, and we're going to get you to use your home energy tariff to fill up your vehicle. And the first question that you asked back to me is, okay, how do I get fairly compensated? Mm. So managing home charge compensation is the next big pressure point. Um, and then finally, you know, we we add this whole equation together to enable us to collect the public charging data across what is today the UK's largest roaming network together with data around home charging, and that's uh, based on your vehicle type, your tariff, the miles you've conducted, to be able to compensate fairly someone who is charging at home and in public. And as we move forward, adding workplace charging to that equation becomes the last step to recreate the fuel card of the future. So going back to this, our fuel card's dead. No, fuel cards aren't dead. They're just different. Mm. We need to transition <clears throat> what that fuel card looked like into a new experience. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's like this idea that in the way that as, as with everything that's becoming an energy, this decentralized solution um, in terms of supporting the need for charging in different places, you need that aggregation back up again yeah. to allow the FD to do their job as they yeah. currently do today. Yeah. And and clearly what's, a, I think, always those that have driven electric vehicles, they always have those moments of being like, I do not want the stress of not knowing where can I charge I don't want to have to pay a £50 deposit to maybe pay £8 charge. All of that sort of stress, yeah. if you extrapolate to a business fleet, I imagine actually that's quite problematic. Yeah, we, we tend to create most value from like a, a fleet of five vehicles or more. Yeah. If you've got five vehicles, you might be able to get away with doing something on the company credit card and it's a bit of a headache and you have to go and collect your receipts and everything. But as soon as you enter the world of like you know, tracking tax, mm -hmm. uh, avoiding like large amounts of pre-authorization on one credit card or you know, taking someone personally out of pocket for charging their vehicle, you you end in a space of going, well, I need a custom solution. Uh, my business is serious about electrification. I need a serious partner to take me on that transition. Um, and that's very much where we're focusing, you know, larger enterprise businesses that are, you know, going, actually, you know what? I've got more than five vehicles now. I've got more than 20 vehicles now. How do I enable my business to transition smoothly, seamlessly, all my data centralized in real time so I can track what my business is doing? That's where the fun begins. Oh. We're going to get a little geeky here because it's something I was thinking through. But um, I actually don't know what the solution is or whether it's even applicable. But 
we know that some businesses, for example, on their electricity contracts are exempt from things like CCL and import um, and VAT. But then when the, if they are a business and they send out business-owned fleets to public charging infrastructure, like is there a way that they have to reconcile that because it's still business use, but it's just not their exact import meter? I, I, what? Yeah, yeah, let's go key. Um, um, let, let's start on the basic geeky bits. Okay, so um if you charge at home today, you pay five percent VAT. Yeah. If you charge in public, you pay twenty percent VAT. There's a lot of conversation going on in the public domain about how do you level these VAT components. Mm. Um for our business drivers, the twenty percent VAT is entirely recoverable because they've got a VAT bill, so it's less of an issue. Creating a five percent VAT bill at home for a single standalone asset, your car charging on it, is a bit of a minefield. Um, I don't believe anyone's doing that today unless they're installing a second meter. Mm. So that piece of the puzzle is probably not there. When you're when you're at home, you then got additional, you know, warm home discount and eco cert, CESP, all that stuff that's built into a home contract that you don't see in a a business electricity contract. So there's a little bit of a, a weird dynamic there, which is if I you know reduce the VAT rate in public, should I also increase some of the warm home discount that happens in public? Ooh, that's yeah, that's not open that one. Um, but, you know, going on to the other piece of how do I get my tariff to move in my vehicle? How can I bring the component yeah. of my tariff to my vehicle? It's not there yet. Yeah. Um, I love the idea that in the future we uh, treat each of the um, electric vehicle charge points as a distribution asset, like a yeah. giant plug. And we bring a contract to with the, the vehicle to that uh, charge point and we dispense that electricity against a specific price contract from that charge point to that driver rather than the charge point operator controlling the electricity contract. We're not there yet because we need to be able to have multiple contracts supplied to single meters. Mm. We need to be able to break it down and digitize it. Uh, but you can see how there's quite a fun space to emerge, particularly as we electrify everything. Uh, the ability to get uh, more sophisticated supply contracts on that journey becomes really crucial. Which actually is kind of the current sort of trajectory in progress, isn't it? They're going to be very soon releasing the ability to have more than one contract on, on a meter, which for me, it makes so much sense, right? Yeah. Because all you're talking about is data reconciliation, which yeah. I guess comes back to the heart of what you're also looking to, to do is like, how do you, is it a problem like getting hold of data, centralizing it, standardizing it and presenting it back? That's the problem you're solving, but surely that's still a, yeah. a hassle for you as a company. It's a problem. Um, I remember this lovely conversation I had with um, part of our, uh, when I was with EDF, part of our supply team, where we were talking about uh, the concept of transactive energy, where you maybe change, you know, energy tariffs and energy components, cost components every half an hour. You could see that these guys who were handling the, the databases and the systems that built up the bill for the customer were freaking out because the the large legacy energy companies don't necessarily have the ability to handle that level of complexity. Um, and if everyone's doing it slightly differently, you've got to, like you say, standardize data flows. Mm. Um, what's interesting about electric vehicle charging is it's almost the other way around. Everyone's starting from a blank piece of paper, and therefore a lot of people have gone about creating different business models, different tariff structures. So um, the UK government has released some new regulations which will come into play on, I think it's the 24th of November, uh, so later this month. They're going to standardize everything into a pence per kilowatt hour. Because up until now, you could have charged a fixed fee when you started charging. You could have charged a time-based fee. You could have charged different fees depending on what time of day you plug in and charge at. You could change that fee depending on whether you plugged in at a certain time or whether you went into a certain time period. 
Um, and all of a sudden, government's gone, whoa, that's getting, you know, it's cool. Energy geeks, we love it. Isn't this great? We can play with these funky tariffs. But as a driver, you haven't got a clue how much it's going to mm. cost to fill up your vehicle. And fundamentally, government's gone, listen, it's going to be pence per kilowatt hour. You can charge whatever funky thing you want, but the pence per kilowatt hour has to be displayed on the unit. And that is the basis for your pricing. So I think that's going to transition quite a lot of the thinking in the space of tariffs and simplify it for us because we now know we're dealing with pence per kilowatt hour. Um, and that makes uh, the driver's life easier as well, which ultimately is the aim of the government's objectives. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because talk us through some of then the kind of key blockers to the growth of your industry, the growth of power, and maybe, if you feel comfortable, touch on from the governmental standpoint, like how, how should they help? if they are going to help, is something like standardization, top-down, looking after the consumer, like a really good starting point. But at the same time, that can curtail innovation, as you've already like highlighted. But yeah. just take us through that minefield. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so this 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 is quite fun for me because um, you know my background is energy, which yeah. makes this conversation a lot easier. I quite often have this conversation with either fleet managers or businesses who are very car-orientated. Mm. And I tend to start by saying, I'm not a car guy. I can't tell you about the transition of the vehicles and when certain models will be available. That's not my thing. So my background is energy, energy infrastructure, and therefore that's what I'll talk about. Uh, there is definitely some transition in the car side, charging speed, battery size, vehicle efficiency, and you can see some of that coming. When it gets to commercial space, you know, having the right kind of commercial vehicles, bigger vans with longer ranges at lower costs are going to be the kind of things that commercial operators are interested in. Uh, cost is a big barrier today. Mm. Um, prior to the Ukraine war, your total cost of ownership model was fairly straightforward. Um, I buy a diesel van, it's cheap. I buy an electric van, it's expensive. But diesel vans are expensive to run, electricity is cheap to run, and that little cost saving is your total cost of ownership basis, and that's how you save money, and that's why you transition to electric. That business case has been squeezed with the increasing cost of energy. So cost will remain a key characteristic when fleets and businesses are looking at transitioning. But on top of that, the next thing we tend to hear is infrastructure. I need more of it all over the place. What's interesting when it comes to the infrastructure debate is if you have a business who has come from a background of petrol and diesel and hasn't made much progress in their electric transition, a lot of that debate is... I need more rapid chargers because rapid chargers, high-powered chargers of 50, 100, 150, 200 or more kilowatts look like petrol stations. I pull over, I plug in, I charge for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I get a big chunk of power and I move on. The reality is that's 20 to 30 minutes of downtime for the driver. What those businesses that are really more advanced in this journey are thinking about is how do I get charging that is at home, at depot, on the street, that means that my driver can be doing something else meaningful on that transition. Mm. So there's kind of these two base strategies of charge um, where you park, which is your overnight type story, or park where you charge, which is your en route high pad story. Those two strategies fundamentally shape our business transitions. And fundamentally within those two strategies, you have the need for more rapid charges or more slow charges. But ultimately at this point in time, more infrastructure is not a bad thing. Uh, the industry's been doing a great job. Some huge numbers of uh, kit getting rolled out week on week, month on month. And therefore, we're transitioning towards a point whereby infrastructure is less of a problem. And now it's down to things like reliability of that infrastructure, accessibility, ease of use. And ultimately, at some point, we will get to price. But I always say to my business customers, price is not your big issue today when it comes to EV charging. 
time is your big issue. Because uh, ultimately, that gentleman who's charging his van, who you would normally charge at, at £100 an hour, if they spend a few pennies more on a charger, because it's more expensive and it's more convenient, but they save themselves 20 minutes, 30 minutes of driving time, that's really good value for money. So don't worry about the price for the uh, the cost of your charging your vehicles at the moment. Worry about the time saving and therefore the size of the network you can access, the ease with which you can access it. They're more important characteristics. So I think the infrastructure question is one which will keep coming back again and again that will transition the business, the industry to electric faster. Government, meanwhile, has been doing some good things in this space. Um, the uh, recent uh, public charging infrastructure regulations, which will go into force on the 24th, will drive things like um, harmonized pricing, harmonized data, call centers, credit card access, more a consumer thing, but simplifying the consumer experience. Uh, data roaming, uh, which is some of the things we're going to be interested in. So releasing open data and then aggregating mm. uh, networks into one solution such as ours or one of the many other providers out there to simplify the driver experience. All of these things are positive. What can government do more of? Uh, I think one of the things that's really interesting for me is if you look at where uh, charging infrastructure is heavily utilised, it's A-roads, it's motorways, it's um, you know busy towns and cities those locations are picking up high numbers of charging transactions and therefore infrastructure investors will build more in those locations because utilization pays the bills and makes sense. As soon as you go out into the outer Hebrides or the countryside where, you know, beyond major cities, the utilization numbers aren't there and therefore the business case isn't there. And therefore we do need some form of public money to support, uh, you know, lower uh weaker business cases to enable infrastructure to be built. Uh, so I think one of the things government needs to think about is how does it allocate financial resources to towns and cities that maybe don't see high EV uptake yet or uh, to rural areas where there's a need for charging but it's just not economically viable to build it. So much like subsidised bus routes in Scotland, mm. you know, how do you find the right methodology to subsidise and support critical infrastructure, but in areas that might not otherwise see utilisation. Mm. I'm sure we can learn from things like broadband access, etc. Like the yeah. the problem of um, data isolation, because you can't get good internet speeds, means you yeah. can't get your job out there, which means you have to move, which means we put burden on city, you know. So mobility is like as equal, if not as important as things like access to internet. So yeah. it makes sense for to look at those areas. If any of those of you that have driven to the west of Wales, as I've done, suddenly the, the charging network just, just gets thin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, I've got 20, 25 miles nearest charger, 27 miles left. That's normally not a problem yeah. when you're around London, but... Take a deep breath, turn the heating off, just make sure it works when you get there. Yeah, no, yeah. that's that's super interesting. And um, it's interesting something you've said is around simplicity. I, I always find when we talk to businesses we work with, it's... How do they run their business better? Yeah. And that's actually what kind of aligns with price is not the problem. Like what you need to ensure is that you're there to maximize your business and what it does. You don't want to have to care about all of the things that slow that down, especially when it comes to energy. We see this in like business energy contracts, the process of securing your next energy contract. Um, price is such like a thing that's being focused on, but ultimately the spread of prices will get thinner and thinner. I'm sure it's the same with EV charge point. The more that there is of EV charge points and providers, the more the price competition will hopefully level out or the government will enforce it. But that behavioral change is always going to be one of the biggest blockers to 
any adoption, right? Um, you presumably, I've already mentioned this, but behavioral change is probably quite important for your mission in terms of what you're trying to provide as a solution to cross that chasm, to make it like a higher adoption of EVs. Like, is that something that you think about as your, like your North Star is, well, not just your North Star for the business, but a purpose is, again, if you build a better product, then you can also help with decarbonization because more people will use electric vehicles. Spot and that's the way it's got to be thought about, not just, hey, everyone needs to use more electric vehicles. And therefore, I don't know, subsidize that, or you've just got to pay a premium if you want to be part of this movement. Yeah, I think one of the things that um, I constantly have to remind myself of is we're very passionate about this space. Uh, we love it. We think it's great. We can you know, spend years and hours talking about various parts of this equation. Uh, but most businesses are just trying to operate a business. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they want to get goods from A to B or drivers to you know, charge up before they go and pick up their next parcel or go and fix a boiler somewhere. So the easier we can make it for them to make that transition, the more likely it is they are going to adopt these technologies. If it's too complex, it's hard to understand. You know, one of the things that frustrates me is this conversation around education. Mm. A lot of people go, we need to educate people. And I'm like, no, we really don't need to educate people. What we need to do is we need to provide facts and insights and guidance. And it's similar to education, but it's different. Education implies I'm going to take you to the classroom, I'm going to sit you down, I'm going to tell you how it works. That's not what the journey we need to take people on. We need to give them the tools they need to make the right decisions, to make it easier for their lives to make a transition rather than forcing them down a path. Um, and I think this journey of helping customers go down that road with data, insight, uh, information is really powerful. Um, a great case study, we, um, we had a small delivery fleet in London, about 35 electric vehicles. Um, and they established using our data that there were 19% of all of their monthly costs were overstay penalties. Uh, you know, these overstay penalties are a fee that a, a charge point operator levies for either staying on a charge point too long, more than a fixed amount of time, or for charging up your vehicle or being plugged in when the vehicle is full. Um, and they got thousands of pounds every month of these overstay penalties. Uh, so when we spoke to them and dug a little deeper, we established that what happened is they had recruited diesel drivers to drive their new electric vans. And the diesel drivers had been treating them like, you know, you would. I'm going to go and take it, I'm going to plug it in, I'll pick it up and drive it off. Uh, some of these guys have been plugging the vehicle in on a Friday night and picking it up on the Monday morning because it was convenient, mm. simple. Not realising that, of course, the van was full by, you know, Saturday morning and therefore it sat there incurring a penalty all weekend. Uh, so as soon as they were able to take the data, have the conversation with the driver, do a little bit of driver behavior, driver education, they were able to transition that journey. So now only 2% of their total monthly bill is overstay penalties. So what's happened is they've changed behavior of the driver through having data and then ultimately doing the education piece. But really it's insights, it's guidance, it's knowledge, it's behavior change that's nudged that fleet into a different set of behaviors using data to enable them to more, off, more effectively operate their business. Yeah, I had a, a great guest on recently who was talking about the need for education, but educating children because they're a captive audience. They're yeah. there to be educated. You educate yeah. one child about the effects of climate change, decarbonization, whatever it might be. Uh, they only have to convince a few adults and the world can change, you know, what is it, three to six. But those that are building a business strategy that requires significant behavioral change and that you're planning to just educate through, I don't know, a huge marketing strategy, my, my, my advice would be to really try and avoid that. Yeah. Create the product, give the data. 
it's not about even, I presume, for you providing that data for them to interpret. You came with the insights. You also yeah. came with the actions. Hey, if you do this, X will happen. Therefore, not here's a nice graph, you know, or... interpret it as you want. Here's a nice portal. I think everyone jumps to a portal. It's like people don't want um, insights even anymore. They want actions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Give me something I can do. Tell mm. me tell me how I can change things and get that number to go down, mm. make my business more effective. I completely agree with that. Mm. There's a whole piece in there around, uh, you know, how do we get data into the hands of busy busy people you know if you think about the data points that are flying at you every day actually what are the ones you pay attention to probably the ones that really make your life a better a better place you know you're buying a better version of yourself that's ultimately what we're selling for you as well do you see uh, something specifically in terms of that are you seeing people utilizing what you build on their mobiles rather than sitting at like a computer screen because obviously you are serving a maybe a financial director who might be sitting there or a, a bookkeeper who is sitting at a computer screen then you've got a driver who's out on the road 